Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Christos Matskas. Christos is a developer, speaker, writer, and Microsoft program manager for Microsoft Identity, doing advocacy at scale. Welcome, Christos. Hey, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we jump into the, the meat of things, why don't you tell us how you got started in the industry and, and maybe what you're working on these days? Wow. Taking down that trip down memory lane, right? But I started 15 years ago, fresh out of uh, university or college, whatever you want to call it. I had just finished my master's degree in advanced computer networking, and I was looking at my next step. And uh, software pulled me back. So my first degree was in software engineering, and I thought to myself, you know what? Um, it's a lot easier to get by with software. It was much harder with uh, networking. And I don't know if, if you've been in the industry, but everything is very centralized. So a lot of companies would manage you know, uh, satellite offices and resources from their main office in London. And I was in Glasgow and I wasn't thinking about moving. So eventually I, um, I decided to go back into software. And my first job was migrating a very old Access, Microsoft Access system into a VB.NET modern system. Um, so .NET was very new. It was 2005 back then, so it was not super established. And we uh, we found some third-party components and we replicated Outlook, uh, <laughs> the, the whole Outlook look and feel into the new system. And we're writing uh, modules. So we're taking modules from Access and put them into uh, VB.NET. It, it was a fun job to get my feet wet. I got done a ton of mistakes. Uh, seriously, when I look back, like we can have a whole show on all the failures I did on my first job. Um, I even did some cold fusion just to uh, see how bad it went. <laughs> and then I left and I, I found my next job into more serious software engineering. I did some desktop support as well. And then into consultancy and then into Microsoft. So what are you working on now? Right now, I work as a developer advocate for Microsoft Identity. Uh, so we have a developer advocacy team uh, within Microsoft Identity, and we try to educate companies, developers, uh, anyone, in fact, uh, about identity and how they should do it right and what they should avoid and why they don't want to make the news for, you know, for the bad reasons that uh, we see company after company making the news every week. So identity is all about authorization and authentication then, correct? Is that... We're, we're looking to, to say, we know who you are and here are the things that you can do? Exactly. I mean, there are a few facades when it comes to actually uh, working with Microsoft Identity, especially with Microsoft. And if you're looking uh, in, in, in the wider side of things, like deploying code and running on Azure, then there are some added benefits. But uh, one of the things that we like to talk about is any platform, any language, anywhere you want, right? You, you can do identity on AWS with Lambda and then still have secure access to your APIs. You can still run uh, Google Cloud and Kubernetes securely using Microsoft Identity. The whole point is uh, we don't want developers to write their own identity providers. 
I mean, they could if they want to have their own business, but um, it's very, very hard to get it right. So what we try to advise people and what we try to take people down the right path is first and foremost, avoid writing their own identity providers. And secondly, if they are going to uh, use an identity provider, they should use ours over everybody else because there are some added benefits. Let's say a company has written their own. Maybe the company that I work for has our own uh, security authentication system. Sure. Is there is there a way to properly integrate that with the identity system that is connected with .NET? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as long as you have followed OpenID Connect and um, OAuth uh, standards, then there's nothing stopping you from pointing to our endpoints and then authenticating against Azure AD or B2C. So uh, obviously, we don't want people to rip out their old code. As long as it's OIDC compliant, then it's a simple uh, case of pointing to a new tenant, uh, setting up an app registration inside Azure AD or B2C, and off you go. Uh, but however, if your code is 20 years old, obviously, you're not compliant. So there are, um, there are some other benefits in migrating your code, especially if you're in .NET today. Since we've simplified all the boilerplate code and we hid away uh, the complexities. But we want you to come as you are. In fact, we have a very nice slide usually with Nirvana singing uh, Come As You Are. And uh, that's, that's the slide because we don't want you to you know, use our libraries. We don't want you to uh, use our guidelines. If you already have OpenID Connect compliant libraries or if you want to use a community written one, then you can, uh, you can integrate with us, no problem. And not just .NET, right? It can be uh, Java, it can be JavaScript, it can be anything that is OpenID Connect compliant. What does it mean to be OpenID compliant? There are specific endpoints that uh, your library needs to be able to uh, use in order to identify metadata and find where to resolve tokens and what have you. So uh, this has uh, been defined in RFCs and our libraries and our identity platform uh, abides by those RFCs. If your library also abides by those RFCs, means that you know both both the the client and the service can speak to each other. So if I get a token, then I know it came from Microsoft. Because the problem with identity, and not just a software identity, but any identity, is trusting who uh, issued the identity to you, right? So you come to the club, I'm the bouncer, and you say to me, I am over 18. Now, you have to prove to me that you're over 18. You could get a handwritten note from your dad that says he's over 18, but I don't know your dad and I don't trust your dad, nothing against your dad, but it's not a, you know, a public figure that I can trust. So for that, we use government documentation. It can be your driver's license, it can be your passport. But at that point, we both trust that this government-issued document is, uh, is valid and you can uh, come to the club. Uh, with software, it's the same challenge. Uh, you acquire a token from someone and you present it to me. I have to go and validate that this token is right. Uh, this is where Azure, uh, Active Directory, and B2C come into play. And we both trust them. And they issue the token to you, and I get the token and validate the token. So in order to be able to do that, uh, we need to follow some guidelines. These guidelines are the RFCs, and this is what OpenID Connect and uh, OAuth define. OAuth is acquiring and managing access tokens. OpenID Connect is uh, getting your ID tokens. Are there, uh, you mentioned uh, using uh, libraries that may already be out there. Are there libraries that you're aware of that would take like a pre-existing system that can deliver JSON web tokens and adapting that so that it, it is uh, OpenID compliant? 
In .NET? Probably, I haven't used them. Like I usually go with what is available on the network, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is one uh, that somebody else has written. Uh, in JavaScript, we have uh, in Node, we have things like Passport. And the other day I was looking at the Vue.js and somebody wrote an MSAL uh, for Vue. And I thought it was our MSAL, the Microsoft Authentication Library, but it was not. It was somebody else that uh, took the name and wrote the package that in effect does what MSAL is supposed to be doing. And there are a lot of open open network, sorry, open source packets or packages that you can use. Same for Python and Ruby and uh, Go. So if we don't have one, usually the community jumps in and does it for us because we're not the only OpenID Connect provider, right? So there might be uh, other providers out there that that people may already be consuming and uh, they want to be able to migrate from one to another without taking a hard dependency on, say, the Microsoft library. What are the other providers out there and, and what do they offer? Is, is it just that they are themselves a trusted source that you can say, uh, we're, we're looking to verify that this person is who they, who they say they are? Yeah, I think uh, obviously there are independent providers like uh, Okta and uh, Auth0. Uh, these guys have been out in the market for a long time and they have, uh, you know, they're part of the competitive landscape. And then if you're taking dependency, say, on AWS, then they also have Cognito, which is an internal service to available to AWS that does authentication and authorization, allows you to uh, validate tokens. So uh, when we talk about the major players, we have obviously uh, Microsoft uh, as the identity provider, and then we have dedicated identity providers. There are a lot more, right? But the biggest players in the market are these three. And they have different stories. Some, some of them have better developer stories. Some of them have a better flexibility. Some of them, um, you know, they can they have scalability and what have you. So you pick and choose what your poison is, right? Ideally, you should be using us. <laughs> <laughs> I am biased. What can I say? But yeah, I mean, there are, and we're not perfect. I will totally admit that our, you know, our platform is not perfect. But there are some significant added benefits. And I don't know, this is usually something that we don't talk about when it comes to uh, talk about identity. Like there is the authentication and authorization component, and then there's the other added component or the added value that we bring to the table as Microsoft. That is first-class support with um, Azure, first-class support with your identity tools, first-class support with your developer tools. So if you're using Visual Studio and you're talking mm-hmm. into Azure services, you can do that without really providing any connection strings, any uh keys to your storage account, for example, all provided and secured by Azure AD. So as a developer, I don't have to worry about credentials, uh, leaking into source code or leaking into somebody else. And uh, my company doesn't have to worry about storing and sharing these secrets with uh, developers because we know that sometimes things can happen either maliciously or by accident. I had people delete resources on Azure by mistake, thinking it was the test uh, subscription rather than the production subscription. Uh, and sometimes things happen maliciously. Uh, people delete databases, people encrypt databases and just bugger off because they, they were fired. Uh, we had an example a few years back from, it was San Francisco Public Transport. One of their admins got uh, fired and he went in and encrypted the database and left. And that meant that they couldn't actually charge for tickets. The ticketing system did not work in the public transport. So everybody was traveling for free for a few weeks. Um, this guy was thrown in jail. He still did not uh, disclose the information. Just uh, this morning, I was reading the news again. Um, it's uh, some school district in the U.S. got uh, owned by hackers. 
and they lost all access to all their systems. Uh, teachers that brought USB sticks into their uh, network lost 20 years worth of work. Now, I don't know why you would keep 20 years worth of work in a USB, but let's assume that uh, they lost it. And then all the student records, all the teacher records, all the school records have been wiped out. And now they're trying to recover from that. They don't have any backups, by the way, because the backups were on the same server as the main running system. So many lessons from the industry. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's 2020. We've seen this over and over and over again. Somewhere out there, hopefully, we don't have to rewrite the book every single time. But at the same time, it keeps our, us consultants um, well paid, I suppose. I saw this on Jurassic Park when the, <laughs> the guy left and didn't make it to the boat and uh, they had to go and turn everything back on. Yeah. So along those those stories, those horror stories of companies getting owned and, and, and getting locked out and leaking information, what are the other reasons why we don't want to write our own? Is it just sheer complexity and the, the danger being responsible for that amount of functionality? I think there are many reasons. Like when I did my own implementation back in 2008, I did not really realize what the complexity of the implementation would be like. Because you assume that you start with a simple username and password. And let's assume that you get your hashing and storing of that data super secure and you have everything down to the T. Now you have the front end that can do you know, validation. Somebody provides the credentials, you validate the credentials and you let them in. Or suddenly I have to implement a password reset. Hmm. Now, how do I send that link across? Is it an email? How do I expire that email? How do I make sure that the link that I provided cannot be hacked? Right? That's the first bit. And then the second one is how do they add the profile? So I have to implement that. And then, oh my God, everyone's talking about two-factor authentication. So I might as well just go and do that. Ooh, for two-factor authentication, I need a service like an email and I need a text texting service. So I'm, I need to add two more services into my implementation. Okay, let's do that. Let's 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 choose, say, Twilio and SendGrid. They will send my emails and it will do everything for me. Now I need to scale that service as well. They will scale with me and I need to store the data. And suddenly I have to have admin pages. If you ever had to do it in, in .NET, in fact, there's a nice uh, scaffolding uh, command line that you can use to scaffold this in .NET, it's something like 16 or 18 pages, right? They have to implement the code behind. Um, as a developer, when I'm starting to think about that, uh, it starts to get a lot, right? My manager has given me five tasks. Uh, authentication is one of them. Now I have to think about how I'm going to implement these. And assuming that I know everything, you know, assuming I know my encryption and hashing algorithms, assuming that I know how the database will be stored, we have somebody that manages the database as well. That's just the front end. Then you have the database. Somebody needs to manage the database and make sure that nobody screws up the that like if they get access to the network, what happens to the database? Can somebody reverse engineer the passwords? Can they do rainbow attacks? Can they uh, am I using the right uh, hashing? And then how is this going to grow? Uh, let's say that I am I go um, viral within the first month. Awesome. I went from one user to 10 million users. How the hell is my database going to grow? How am I going to you know, make sure that this grows as well. And now let's let's assume that you're a company and you have developers, they have, you know, 5,000 developers writing systems. You could end up with, and I've been in that situation where we had 150 different databases that manage users. Damn, that's going to be hard. Co you know, collecting that information, we had to build APIs on top of APIs to pull the data from different databases. And what happens when somebody leaves the company? 
right? Uh, let's say you don't have external users. You have a line of business app that authenticates users against Azure AD. Okay, so he left. He's away from, he's gone from AD or Azure AD, whatever you're using to manage your users. Have you gone to all 150 databases to remove them from access? I've been in companies where there were people two years after the, they were laid off or left the company that could still access production systems because they never rolled their keys. So all these come into play. Why not just go Azure AD, new app registration, two lines of code, and I'm done. I'm off to the next task. The IT department can manage users and maintain their uh, their access, whether that's authorization or authentication. Users can reset their password using self, uh, self-managed self uh, portals that we have for Azure AD, and I'd never, ever have to touch anything. And it's all managed by me, and it will scale with my company, so I can go from one user to 10 million users without ever thinking about that. In Azure AD, we do 30 billion authentications a day. That's an insane number. I have to check it with marketing because uh, obviously that's like, are you sure it's not like 3 billion or maybe 30 million? And they were like, no, that's the actual number that we share. So scaling, security, there are so many components that go into identity. We have 1,500 engineers that work day in, day out to make sure that you don't screw up. You get two-factor authentication for free. Uh, you you know, we went from MSAL, JS 1.0 to 2.0. We removed implicit flows. Damn it, man. I'm talking about flows now, but let's <laughs> let, let, let's touch the flow. Implicit flows. You had to actually provide a client secret into your JavaScript uh, single page app to, um, to allow you to authenticate. Uh, now 2.0 allows you to do authorization flow and we remove credentials. Uh, if you... If you are a developer, you get that for free. You don't have to worry about securing or rewriting your libraries from scratch. We did it for you. So, so many benefits in not implementing your own uh, identity. And that is assuming that you get everything right, right? So it's like, I could screw up my my storage of uh, passwords. I could be encrypting rather than uh, hashing. So many times we've seen that. People, companies claim, but your data is secure with us. We're encrypting them. And here is your password when you reset it. Like, why do you have access to my password? You should know that. I should know that. You should know that. Nobody should know my password. Should be a hash. So we get it wrong. People will have stupid requirements, like your password cannot be more than eight characters to 16 characters because they screwed up the database or the storage. You see that, you run. Because if that's your bank, then you know that they're not storing hashes. They're storing some random stuff there. So is, is that enough of a reason to, uh, to you know, <laughs> convince people not to do it themselves? I don't know. I hope well, so. It, it makes me feel a little less bad for sitting in the corner and rocking back and forth for a week after I have to deal with security, seeing that probably everybody does it. If someone had an old security system, yep. pre-identity or coming from another system or something like that, is there a way to migrate that security, the the records in the database and, and whatnot over to an OpenID Connect compatible system and maybe even hook it up with the uh, Azure Active Directory and all that? So if we're talking about Azure, Azure AD, obviously, because this is the example here, and there are ways to allow you to um, use APIs that we provide you to do mass migration. And we've done it for a lot of customers, right? They come from uh, Active Directory, on, on-prem, they never used Azure AD, they didn't want to uh, sync up, so they didn't want to have federation between the two systems. They go, you know what, clean slate, we want all our, all our users to be uh, migrated to the cloud. Awesome, let's do that. We have customers from competitors when they realize that they already have M365 and Azure and they already have free Azure AD for, uh, as part of the su- subscription, 
They're like, we don't want to pay for two systems. Help us migrate. So there are lots of ways to help you migrate those systems. We can automate that. We can do the exports and the imports uh, without losing any information. But there is a little bit of a change in the mindset on, obviously, once you migrate the data, you need to change the, the front end and you also need to change your security uh, requirements around these things because these kind of changes tend to follow things like we're migrating to the cloud and we're taking all our apps with us. Uh, what do we need to be aware of? So suddenly you leave the nice comfort and security of your internet, if you can call it secure. But let's assume that you have a super duper uh, network. It's very well secured. You have proper perimeter security. You have intrusion detection, anything that you want. And suddenly you go into the cloud where everything is open. My web apps are open. My databases are open. They have public endpoints. What do I do with that? So there's, uh, there's not just the back end, but you also need to worry about how the front end needs to be secured, whether it's an intranet app or an extranet app, and allow people to access it from everywhere without compromising security. You're asking this twice. Do, do we have a system that we need to talk about? <laughs> well, uh, at, at work, we, we created our own authentication system. Uh, it right. does produce JWTs, but we have you know all of our... Uh, internal users and all of our external user, uh, users managed by the system. Right. It has its own custom claims, which mm-hmm. don't like we have to do the um, uh, we have to write the auth provider. Uh, at least on the server side, we've had to write the auth provider to pull the correct claims and populate the identity. Right. Um, and it would be so much simpler if everything was because I like I'm trying to write Blazor apps and. With Blazor, it's it's super simple to point the authentication at OpenID Connect endpoints. Yep. However, we don't have an OpenID endpoint, or OpenID Connect endpoint, and I I was trying. I, I had the OpenID Connect docs open, and I was trying to uh, basically replicate the bare minimum of what we would need to be able to be an OpenID Connect uh, endpoint. Right. And I got all the way to the point where I'm sending the token back to Blazor. Uh, so that it can do what it does and, and give me access to the site. And then it just responds with, uh, sorry, um, I can't allow anonymous access. <laughs> but, I, but I gave you a token. Why, right. why, why won't you take my token? And uh, I started looking through the, um, you know, the source code, mm-hmm. and I, I copied the source code from the GitHub uh, and pasted it into my code and then uh, set up the dependency injection so that it was calling into my code instead of calling into the code from the library. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of the code seemed to actually be doing anything. And I wasn't getting anywhere. And so I, I've kind of given up. He's waiting uh, for that blog post that is the solution that he can just <laughs> line yeah, from. <laughs> somebody needs to write something. There's a bunch of stuff for Blazor 3.2, especially on server side, because I have a server side solution where we just implement. It's real simple on the server side. You just implement the JWT auth provider. You know, you read in the token, you populate it into local storage, and then yep. you populate the claims and you're done. Yep. I, I, I can't find that same you know, one or two class solution for Blazor WebAssembly in in .NET 5. Yeah. I don't know what to do. The the problem with Blazor WebAssembly is that it's running on the client side. So uh, even for us, we had the complexity of, by saying us, I'm talking about the Microsoft Identity platform, uh, where Microsoft Identity.web, which is our new library, works beautifully on server side. But on client side, we had to use MSL.js 2.0. However, there is... 
there needs to be some interop between the client side and the server side or you know code behind whatever you want to call it so that the dotnet um, element knows what the javascript element says so we had to write uh, a specific feature there to allow or interoperability to allow uh, to allow this kind of uh, flow to run through and there are still gotchas right if you are using blazor wasm uh, you have to request all the, the scopes up front. So when you go and say, give me an ID token and my access token, I need to get them all up front because we do not support uh, incremental consent. Not yet anyway, because we uh, everything renders once and everything renders on the, on this, on the client side. So you, know, you can do that, that call once and you have to do it up front. So uh, I, I feel your pain. And even for us, that we have the platform and we own the platform, it's been challenging explaining to people what are the differences and why, say, for example, Microsoft Identity.web would not work. But uh, we are working on fixing that. And uh, I, I can see the pain there. So if you were using uh, Azure AD, I would say that we have the solution for you. But <laughs> It'd be, be super simple. <laughs> well, in, in saying that as well, if you actually do a, a Blazor Wasm, what you could do is... You can spin up a Blazor Wasm with authentication, assuming that you're working against Azure AD, and then look at the uh, the wrappers around MSL.js, because I think there's a, uh, was authorization.js or authentication.js. There's a specific file that does this uh, interrupt between the client side and the server side. And at some point, I was calling into storage and I had some issues, so I worked with one of our engineers. That's the beauty of working in Microsoft. You ping one of the engineers, and we wrote a custom uh, authentication.js library that was calling into the code. So that worked beautifully. You might be able to benefit from that. I don't know if you have a, a chance to look at it. Okay, I, I didn't get that far down the rabbit hole. I was still implementing <laughs> uh, class after class after class. Right. Seemingly, seemingly did nothing. Like one of the handlers... It just it just returns the handler like it receives a handler and then just returns a handler. Okay, and I was like, okay, well, that didn't do anything. And then you know, next class, <laughs> and I just kept going down and down and down. Yeah, uh, for like a week, and I, I wasn't getting anywhere. And my boss was like, maybe do something else for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Take a break from uh, from identity. Let's let's you, let's get you to do something else. Along those lines, in in in. I, I say this in that Microsoft has done a phenomenal job in making this type of solution easier to manage and easier to implement. But I've seen posts out there, I've seen tweets out there saying things like, do we need that kind of level of complexity for like my son's soccer team website? And, oh, okay, well, we need uh, we need to spin up AKS and, and load balancing and, and blob storage and key vault and, and Azure AD and, and all this stuff. Do we need that? What What is the level of sophistication that we need sure. in order to to decide that we need to do something like OpenID Connect? Well, I don't want you to ever talk about protocols or think about protocols when it comes to identity. And if I can manage to do that and convince you to use our platform, then I won't. Because when we look at identity at Microsoft, there are two flavors. One is the line of business app. I'm creating a you know a solution that people from my company will be logging in. And then I'm creating a forum for uh, all the soccer parents to go and communicate with, uh, you know, the team. Or I'm creating a, you know, a mobile app that needs to sign in users. And what I need there is a way to capture that information. I need a username and a password at the very base level. And we give you that uh, with B2C. So we have Azure AD for line of business apps. And then we have B2C, which is the business to consumer flavor of Azure AD. And it starts at the very basic. You just go and do an app registration. Once you spin up your tenant, 
And then with that app registration, you have enough information to say, I'm going to have a web app or a mobile app. And you take that information, you put it into your code, and then depending on how you want to do it, if you want to use our libraries, msl.net or JS, whatever you're using, then we give you the code. It's usually a few lines of code. Uh, I won't say it's very simple, but uh, if you're doing .NET, it's two lines of code. In fact, we can compress that into one if you want to be super concise. Um, we hide all the complexity. And then if you if you use JavaScript, it's probably, what, 25 lines of code to do the sign-in, sign-out, edit profile, and password reset. Literally 25 of lines, lines of code that we provide you out of the box. You don't have to write anything. And because all the uh, authentication and authorization and token exchange happens for you, you don't have to know how that happens. You don't have to know that whether you're using OIDC or whether you're using OAuth2 or whether your authorization flow or whether you're using you know, uh, confidential clients, whether you're doing code flow or whatever. Depending on what you're building will give you the right options. So from there, you can go and actually move on to the next task. You don't have to do or touch identity ever again. Now, do you want to do Kubernetes and have a super complex solution for your forum? Sure, but what is the simplest option? You have a web app that runs somewhere. I mean, you can do a static website with two lines of JavaScript or two files, two JavaScript files, some CSS and, and one HTML file, and you're good to go. But you can go crazy and go and spin up a Kubernetes cluster and have insane scalability. It all comes down to what you need. But I would never advise you to go and do something super complex. If I can manage to convince you that identity is fairly simple if you follow the basic guidelines, then again, uh, I've done my job well. Yeah, I think it, it's been maybe a year or two since I had to do from scratch any implementation mm-hmm. like this. And I think at the time, ADAL was the, the way to go, was the library to use, were, were the, the JavaScript libraries that were available and all the demonstrations and, and tutorials out there on how to get started. So is MSAL the replacement of, of ADAL or are they still both in use? Fantastic question. Thank you for asking that. So ADAL and MSAL, these two libraries have been out there for a while. Uh, back in June, uh, right after the build, we announced that ADAL is going away. Uh, so we're sunsetting the library as of June 2022. You still have a year and a half, but let's start thinking about it. If you have some questions to, for us, if you have concerns about you know migrating large systems, we do have some teams and support to get you over the line. Uh, but if you're starting today, if you're a Greenfield project, go ahead and use MSL. That's out of the box anyway. If you are still using ADL in all the systems, just be aware that it's been uh, deprecated and we want you to move to MSL because there are so many benefits. You know, you get so many things out of the box for free. Uh, it's it's obviously the one that's going to be uh, supported in the future as well. And you get going to get new features and what have you. But um, for those ones that use ADL, the old uh, authentication library, just be aware that we're deprecating that. Is there anything else about security or identity in .NET that we didn't bring up that we need to uh, need to mention? Yes, managed identity, Azure managed identity, and the fact that if you are running on Azure, you now have the ability to you know call services or enable services to call other services without adding any secrets. And I think I mentioned that earlier on, but uh, and not just for .NET, it's .NET and um, JavaScript, if you're using the Azure SDKs, they're built with that mindset. So local development happens seamlessly. You use VS Code on your MacBook. Uh, you uh, sign into your VS Code. As long as that account has access to Azure resources, I can call those resources without having to set anything up. 
And then when I move into production, let's say I have a web app, right? The simplest scenario. I have a web app that goes into uh, some data store. And that data store can be storage or it can be uh, SQL. Let's use SQL. Very common scenario or no SQL. So we have the website that needs to call into SQL. And, in the, and every .NET developer has done this. There's uh, some config setting somewhere in a, in a JSON or XML file that says connection string X, and then it passes the connection string. And sometimes we tend to put passwords there. Now, uh, in .NET, we have secrets, so you can store it in the secret, but now you have to manage the secret, which is stored as an environmental variable, and somebody else can see it if they have access to the machine. So how do I secure that? By using managed identities, we eliminate the need to do that because your app is running under the context of the current user. And then as assuming that the, that user has access to the SQL database, I can call into that SQL database without passing a secret. Once you move into production, Obviously, the application won't be running as me. Uh, hopefully, you're not doing that mistake of using you know, elevated permissions. A lot of developers have elevated permissions on Azure. You're not going to be running under that context. So if you're using a web app, then that web app can have its own context, its own managed identity. And that managed identity can be configured to call into SQL and SQL alone. And maybe uh, lock down to permissions to say only data reader. So you know that connection cannot override data. It's just a reader. So not in some cases, where you need to have write access, you can also give write access. But the nice thing is that um, both SQL and web apps understand that this identity exists. It's all managed by Azure AD. You as a developer don't have to worry about that. Your IT team doesn't have to worry about the, the account. We roll your keys for you. Uh, it happens automatically. They're super um, strong. So there's that embedded security, which uh, it's another benefit. There's also uh, the DevOps side of things. So you talked about security and we have sec DevOps. The first part is obviously Developing securely. So let's say we eliminate all the secrets. Now you have to deploy the code and to deploy your SQL database, your infrastructure, you have to also provide a username and a password. How do you eliminate those uh, secrets in your deployment pipeline? Again, with uh, service principles, which is uh, an identity in Azure AD, you can have lockdown permissions to say, I want to use this service principle to deploy my code, my infrastructure as code and my code uh, in a very specific context. And since I am doing it against Azure, I can also go and pull Key Vault uh, credentials. So this uh, specific uh, account has access to the Key Vault without me passing any uh, keys to go and pull the keys that I will need later down in the pipeline to populate that. And uh, we did a, a, a very nice demo at .NET Conf uh, back in November where we saw this end-to-end. -end, and then we saw how you can do it with Terraform and how you can do it with uh, GitHub Actions, and how you can do it with uh, Azure DevOps. So it doesn't matter which system you're using. It doesn't have to be our system. Again, come as you are on any platform, and it will run fine for you. And one of the coolest things that we demoed is using Azure Arc-enabled devices. So any machine, anywhere, as long as it's uh, joined into an Azure Arc network, it uh, looks and feels like an Azure VM. That means I can take an AWS server, uh, added into Azure Arc. Now Azure thinks it's part of its uh, VMs and then it gets its own managed identity, which means I can run, say, a custom agent or a custom uh, solution inside that VM that calls into Azure AD to authenticate and then calls into other services without passing any secrets. So that's that's the thing that's going to let me get rid of the VPN, right? Yes. So that we, we don't need the VPN. We can just log into VS Code or Visual Studio and then access internal uh, servers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on how you connect to them. You know, some companies will have um, direct links to Azure uh, Express, Express routes, or they might have a VPN. 
So that, that's an, an added security. It doesn't mean that you don't need a VPN. It just means that it's not needed to do it securely. And I know lots of companies that in the past also had jump boxes, so they would allow their developers to, they, they wouldn't allow developers to access Azure resources from their own environment, but they had a jump box in Azure where they would log in and then uh, from inside Azure, they would be able to do that. But with Azure Arc, that extends ex- extends your network into your on-prem environment. So as long as you do your security correctly on the network and infrastructure level, then it eliminates a lot of complexities for developers as well. So where can folks go to learn more about identity, about security in the cloud, about any of the topics that we talked about today? I think the best place to get started is documentation. Uh, We are actively working on improving documentation every single day. So if you ping me today and say, well, Chris, I tried to do this and I got stuck there, or I tried to implement something and the code is wrong, then, you know, if you you don't want to raise the the pull request, I will do it for you. Somebody pinged me the other day on Twitter saying, uh, does MSOL... Do you have a Python library for uh, for Epsil or an Epsil library for Python? I was like, yeah, man, we do. It's like I, I don't see it in the documentation. You know, it, it starts off saying you know, .NET and Java and JavaScript, but it doesn't have Python there. Well, I said let's fix it. So within two minutes, that was fixed and pushed into production. Uh, small edits like that we can we can do internally without having to go over uh, PR reviews. Obviously, somebody looks at, at that, but as long as they you know what you're doing, you're okay. It just means that, you know, I can fix this for you. And documentation is fantastic. We have architecture diagrams. In fact, recently we released a a, a whole set of architecture and best practice for high availability for Azure AD. You know, a few months back, we had some some outages, which affected quite a few systems. And uh, obviously, one of the things that people tend to ask is, can I do Azure AD uh, offline? Can I authenticate my users offline? Obviously, you can't. But what happens if there is some interruption in the network? We try to... Uh, allow you or allow your users to continue to work with your solutions without being kicked out or, you know, uh, like extended token lifetime, which, uh, you know, it might sound insecure. Suddenly you're like, what, am I going to have, a, you know, a, an access token that lasts for 60 hours uh, or, you know, whatever. But we also have, uh, we're trying working on proof of possession and uh, continuous assessment. So, you know, not only do we give you a longer lasting uh, token, but we also continuously assess that. So what happens, for example, is let's say minimum, you have one hour worth of a token, right? What happens if you, if, within the first five minutes, you're laid off? That token is still active for you or you kicked out of the system for, for another hour. So I can still go and exit. With a continuous assessment, we uh, we look into that interaction and we're like, you know what? Uh, you shouldn't have access anymore. So look at the docs. We have fantastic architecture on how to start very, very small and scale out. Uh, and that covers both identity and other systems, right? So if you're creating .NET solutions, the .NET documentation is in par with uh, the identity documentation. The uh, you know if you're using Azure, we try to make sure that you're you're aware of managed identities and how you can use it in the code. So if you're looking at Kubernetes, there will be a section for managed identities. From my perspective, I want people to be aware that these things exist. So you know if, if you're thinking about working with storage. One of the things they can look at is like, oh, has a you know storage has a key that I can use. But you know, Christos mentioned something about Mars the dentist. Can I use Mars the dentist here? Oh, I can use it. Awesome. Let's go and do that. So docs are fantastic. We also have a, a Twitch stream. Hey, Twitch on Twitch. We have a, a show on Monday and Friday where we talk about identity and we bring guests from the industry, whether they are um, Microsoft employees or whether they are community members, MVPs, or anyone that actually builds with the, the identity platform. And we get them on the show and we build stuff together or we go through things that they have built in the past. 
or challenges, and we talk about uh, news and announcements and new features that go uh, out uh, very, very frequently in the platform. The, the whole point there is to educate people. So Mondays and Fridays at 8 a.m. Pacific time at the 4 to 5 show. And on Tuesdays, we started a, a learn module. So we have a learn on Learn TV, we do one hour of general identity. Usually on Mondays and, and Fridays, we do hands-on hardcore stuff. And it, we assume that people come to the show having some uh, foundational knowledge on identity. The Tuesday show is super fundamental. You know, I'm a student. I'm just fresh out of university. I don't know what the hell identity is. Help me get started. And we go through the basics. We talk about tokens. We talk about flows. Uh, but, you know, you, you don't have to do that if you've been in the industry for 10 years. Or you can come back and uh, refresh your memory. I think I could benefit from both of those because I have no idea what I'm doing with security, but I need to go deep. That's fine. <laughs> Uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or maybe those looking to level up their careers? Uh, two things. Uh, leaving your uh, comfort zone, it's super helpful. Like I, I will find something. The other day I was like, can I do Go with MSAL? Like, do we have a library? And then I could see like we didn't have a library. So I was like, I started looking into OpenID Connect and I started working with somebody else on, can we actually build like an MSAL for Go? And we build it in two days, right? So we... I've never done Go before, so it was like learning on the fly and felt falling on my face. So leaving my comfort zone has been super important. Uh, and then the second one was having an appetite to learn and a, a very heavy uh, resilience to failure, right? You need to love failure in this job if you want to move forward. And uh, some of the things that I've, I've learned over the years was it's okay to totally fail. It's okay to try and do something and totally fail and ask for help. But try first, like see how far you can take it, see how many hours you can spend on something. And then uh, once you get stuck, learn from the other people that know. Uh, for example, I have JP in my team. He's, if I know about identity, I know like 5%. He knows the other 95%. He, this guy is a walking, talking knowledge base. So every time I get stuck with something, I reach out first to him and say, dude, I, I'm trying to do this. It doesn't work. Uh, let's work through that together. So I, I, I'm more than happy to fail. And I love failure because it pushes me to learn, you know, look in the docs, Google, search, reach out the right people, and then find why it didn't work. So where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? You mentioned the 425 show on Twitch, and we'll, we'll have links to that in the show notes. Are you active on Twitter or any other social media accounts? Maybe too active on Twitter, as my wife says. Like, are you, are you, are you messing with Twitter again? Uh, Christos Matskas uh, on Twitter. Uh, you'll find me there. If you have any questions uh, about identity or general questions about life, I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, we have an email as well, 425so at Microsoft.com. If you have, again, any technical questions or you want to learn more about what we do, feel free to reach out. Between these, like Twitter, the show, and uh, email, there's no chance I'll miss you. Thanks, Christos. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. That was Christos Matkus. Christos is a developer, speaker, writer, and Microsoft program manager for Microsoft Identity, doing advocacy at scale. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And be sure to catch us live each week on Twitch and follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Thank you.